The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and we'll look at the book of Acts again. Acts and chapter 2, and we're going to move on from the verses we were considering for the last several weeks. The last three, four, five verses to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 2, from verse 42 down to verse 47. Beginning at Acts... Chapter 2 and verse 42, the Word of God says, And they, that's the disciples and the apostles, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we trust God will have blessing to the reading of the word. You remember those days when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? I can still remember when I was 13 years of age, I was up at a camp. I was young, a little more hyperactive than I am now. And I remember just this joy I had, the sense that everything was new. The sun shone brighter. The the water sparkled so much more. There was just a sense of life and refreshment. Everything was new. Everything was fresh. Everything was bright. And as you read this text here and you look at what these disciples are doing, you have a sense that there is a joy and a love and a desire amongst them to be together, to be a part of this new body, this new life. There's like that wide-eyed wonder. You watch a little baby and you you pick it up and you, you put something sparkly in front of it and the eyes widen open and they just kind of stare at that thing, and there's a wonder, there's an amazement, and that little baby as it's discovering something that seems so new. And to us, it's old. We've seen it a thousand times before. But to that little baby, it's new, it's bright, it's fresh. And these disciples, many of them have grown up in the Judaistic faith. Many of them have done so many years of worship at the temple and come and kept the festivals and kept the feasts and done all those things. And now they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've felt deep inside their hearts that moment when God made them alive. There was a conviction of their sin. There's a reality that Jesus saves. There's faith. There's baptism. There's a gathering together. And they're hearing all about Jesus and it's breathed a whole new life into them. That life comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit. The text is talking about and describing what it was like to be in that church to experience that new Holy Spirit-empowered life. There was a number of things we can see in the passage here. 
And I want us to work our way through. And I want us to see the power of the Holy Spirit in each of these things. We're not going to go through in racing order. We're just going to pick through it line by line. And I want us to see the power of the Spirit of God at work amongst those early believers. And as you're sitting here this morning, I want you to ask yourself, I want you to test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Brother and sister, do you see the work of the Holy Spirit going on in your life? And maybe the question is, do I? And if I don't, why not? You say, am I trying to stumble people who may be saved, but maybe not? No, I'm not trying to stumble anybody. I'm trying to give you a very, hold the mirror up to your face so you can see exactly who you are in Christ or not. And if you discover that you're really not in Christ, then there's much time, there's opportunity to come and trust the Lord, to know what it is to be born again, to live that Holy Spirit-empowered life that these new believers were living. So I want you to see, first of all, there's a note sheet there in your, in your uh, bullet. You can follow along if you like, and there's space in the back. You can make some notes if you'd like to do that as well. There was, first of all, displayed there in that early church, the power of God, the Holy Spirit power of God to validate the apostles' words. I want you to notice what he says in verse number 43. He says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. One of the Greek scholars I read said, You can take that verse and you can reorder it so it's, so it's like this. Quite legitimately. God did many wonders and signs through the apostles and awe came upon all every soul, everyone there. So first of all, you have to ask yourself, what's this wonders and signs being done through the apostles? What's that all about? Well, God, as he has worked through salvation history, every time there's been a great new era unfolded in God's revelation of, his, of himself, he has often brought about wonders and signs to validate the words of the one who are speaking. For example, we have the life of Moses. Moses is called by God to go to Egypt to lead the people of God out, and he goes and declares the message, this long-since-forgotten uh, prince of Egypt, now living on the backside of a mountain, shepherding some sheep, shows up with his crook and his rough clothing and walks into the court of Pharaoh and says, The Lord says, Let my people go. And God validates his words by signs and wonders. You remember his staff? He throws it on the ground. The staff becomes a serpent. And the Pharaoh says, oh, that's nothing. He calls in his magicians. They throw their staffs on the ground. They all become serpents. I love what God does. Moses' serpent swallows all the other ones up. And then Moses takes it back into a staff again. And, of course, the Egyptian officials are left with no staffs. And God is displaying the power of who is behind Moses' words. God is doing those things through Moses. And Moses takes the people of Egypt, not people of Egypt, people of Israel, out of Egypt, takes them out to a mountain in the desert, goes up and he comes down with the word of God. And there's a whole new era unfolded for the people of God, the era of the law and the primacy and the place of the law in the people's life. Years and years and years and years go by, and God raises up a new group of men who are going to write a significant part of our Bible. They're the writing and teaching prophets. Elijah and Elisha come along just ahead of them, about 50 years ahead of them. And you know what Elijah and Elisha do? 
all sorts of signs and wonders so that the people will know when they speak, they have the power of God. God himself stands behind their words and God validates their words to the people of God by performing great wonders and miracles and signs. There is fire from the heaven on Mount Carmel. There's jars and oil turning water into oil. There's the raising of a boy from death. There's the cleansing of Naaman the leper. There's miracles done by God through Elijah and Elisha to validate the words of the prophet so that when people begin to say, thus says the Lord, and they speak the word of God, they know the power of God is behind those words. And it comes with great authority. Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ came. And what does Peter say back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22? That men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or approved to you by God. How did he do it? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What was God doing? He was validating the words of Jesus with those wonders and miracles and signs. Remember the first miracle in the book of Mark? He's in the synagogue in Capernaum, I believe it is, and he's teaching all the people, and the people are so amazed. Wow, such teaching with authority and not like the scribes. And a demon-possessed man walks in, and Jesus passed the demon out of him, and now the people are awed and amazed. Who is this one? The disciples out in the boat, and there's a great big storm going up and down. And Jesus stands up and says, shh, be still. The people and the disciples stand back and look at him. Who is this one? And God displays Jesus as his man, the God-man who has come to set his people free. And he does it by mighty signs and wonders. Now you have the era of the apostles and all of the New Testament is being written and these apostles stand up and preach and they preach the gospel and you don't understand, we don't get it, how radical their message was to the people of the Jews of their day. They thought all those years of disobeying the law, God had driven them out of the land and put them into exile and punishment. They had lost the kingdom. They'd lost the temple. They'd lost the priesthood. All that stuff had been put away because of their disobedience to the law. And the disciples stand up and say, you know what? Jesus has kept all the demands of the law for us. It's no longer the temple. It's faith in God. And how does God validate their words? It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's they're the agent, they're the administrator, but it's God's power himself working behind them to do those great things. And so we see the power of God there. God validated their words with signs and wonders. The New Testament scriptures were not yet written and complete, and God displayed his approval to their witness and their preaching by performing those signs and wonders through them. And the question, of course, comes across every mind. I'm sure if I don't state it now, someone will ask me afterwards, are signs and wonders for today? Well, let me ask you another question. Is it possible for God to do signs and wonders today? And my answer is yes, it's possible. Absolutely it's possible. I will not be the one to stand here and say, God can't do that and God can't do this. 
because that would be foolish. God is the God of the impossible. Should we go looking for signs and wonders? My answer is no, don't. You say, why is that? Well, it's very simple. You have the Word of God right in front of you. You have everything that God desired you to know. Brothers and sisters, watch out. There is a new group in California call themselves the New Apostolic something or other. And they're claiming to be the final uh, generation of apostles. And they're claiming to speak and teach and preach. Claiming to speak Scripture, the final chapters of the Bible. You say, wow, wait a minute. Are they true? Are they real? No, they're not. The Word of God is absolutely complete. Don't go looking for signs and wonders and miracles to validate everything. God has given the testimony of His Holy Spirit in the written pages of Scripture. Everything we need is right here. These disciples and apostles are working and living and building a church when the New Testament Scriptures hadn't even begun to be written at this point. It takes another 10 to 20 years before the first books start to be written and another... Uh, 70 years before the last one's finally complete. So there's a period of time there, and God validates the words of His chosen men with signs and wonders and miracles. And notice the effect. The Bible says that awe came upon every soul. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it'll say, and fear was coming upon every soul. In other words, all those outside the church, all those standing by looking on to see what was happening, there is a sense of fear and wonder and amazement. The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 that those outside did not dare to join them. They backed away. There was a fear because those people who were gathering together as the church of the living God, everybody recognized that the hand of God was amongst those people. You didn't go running in there to say, oh, I want to be a part of this new thing. Because it was a God thing. And there was a sense that those people had been taken and called by God and brought into that group by God's mighty hand and God's power. And they didn't go running in to join. This is long before the days of cultural country club style Christianity. If you were part of that group, you were part of it because God had clearly worked in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit was so evident amongst you and those others who had been called by God as well that you knew that God had called you and you didn't dare join that group unless God called you. But notice the wonderful truth at the very bottom of the passage. The Lord added to their number daily. Those who are being saved. In other words, as God was saving people through what was happening amongst that group, I heard a story, uh, some of you know the name of Keller, uh, Philip Keller. No, what's the Keller guy in New York? Tim Keller, that's the guy. Tim Keller, I watched him on a little video clip, and he talked about a revival that happened in America in the late 60s and early 70s. You see, he was on a, on a college campus, and all these young people were coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. He said, we didn't do evangelism. We didn't go knocking on doors. He said, we were so excited to be together as a new body and people, young people were getting saved by the tens and twenties and the group was growing so fast and there was a hubbub all over the college campus. There's something amazing going on amongst those people and people were coming and sitting amongst that group and saying, the presence of God is amongst these people. They were being changed. There was repentance of sin. There was faith in God. There was new life. So we didn't have to do evangelism. We couldn't keep them away. 
But they weren't coming just to be kind of curious in that sense. They were coming because they were sensing that God was amongst those people. I heard this, I um, heard or read, I can't remember now, uh, on, online, uh, while talking about churches. No, it was R.C. Sproul. He said one of the most condemning things ever said about the modern church is it's boring. You go and you sit in a group and you sing hymns and you read a Bible and somebody gets up and drones away for half an hour and it's boring. And R.C. Sproul and his usual inimical way said there's a reason why it's boring. God isn't there. He said, you read through the Bible and you look and see wherever God is present, it's not boring. People are falling on their faces in fear and trembling when God is present. Maybe the reason why so many of our churches come across as boring is because God is not there. We have, by using the methods of the world and the thinking of the world, we've driven God right out of the building. These people, these disciples and apostles gathering together, filled with the Holy Spirit, living in the Holy Spirit's power, there is something so dramatic going on amongst them that people are in fear and awe of God. God's hand is at work amongst those people. Awe came upon every soul. Listen, the new life in Christ is a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice something else here. Notice in verse number 44. The Bible says all who believed were together. Which group? Well, those who believed. Well, how is it that one becomes a believer in Jesus Christ? Again, it's the work and power of the Holy Spirit to take those who are dead and make them alive. The Bible tells us in John 16 and verse 8 that the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin. And we saw that back in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is preaching the gospel. They're cut to the heart. I believe that's the convicting power of the Spirit of God putting his long finger into their chest and saying, you're the one who has sinned. You're the one who needs a Savior. It is the work of the Spirit of God. John chapter 3 and verse 5, the Bible says, uh, Jesus answered speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's the Spirit of God that gives us new birth. It's the Spirit of God working in us that makes us alive in Christ. These disciples, they knew what it was to be made alive in Christ. The Spirit of God works to make those who are dead in sin and dead to God. He makes them alive to God. These people here, as you read the story, what comes across is the fact that they're alive in Christ. There is life in them because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, the Spirit makes us alive, but He gives us the faith to believe. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing It is the gift of God. The faith that we have to believe is the gift of God to us. But wait, there's more. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit seals us with His presence and His infilling. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He seals us. He brands us. He shuts us in with Christ. I was telling the folks who came out last Sunday night about learning the Greek word that goes behind seal. And I pronounced it horribly and con nicely corrected my pronunciation. And it's the idea, this word sounds like fridge. I'll ask Con to tell you later. It sounds like fridge. And all I could think of was when you close a fridge door, it shuts and it seals shut. And all those things inside that fridge door are kept cold and kept in that dark place, ready to be eaten three months from now. Right? So it's sealed in. The Spirit of God sealed those believers as in Christ. He also branded them with His presence. So that when you look here, and we're going to see about the love they had for one another in just a moment, that love, that work that they were doing, that togetherness, that selling their possessions and all those other things, they were all evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, the sealing presence of the Spirit of God amongst them. But you know what? There's more. There's even more. The Spirit of God works to produce evidence of His presence. He doesn't hide in a corner in that sense. He lives in the person and He produces living evidence that He is there and He is alive and He is working through that person to love, to patience, to joy, to peace, to all those other fruits of the Spirit. Fruit, sorry, of the Spirit. He produces evidence of His existence in that person's life. We read the words, and all who believed were together, and so on. I want to ask you the question this morning. I've got to ask you the question. Do you know what it means to be born again? Do you know what it means to be made alive in Christ? Do you know what it means that God created all mankind to glorify Him in everything we do? Do you know what it means? Do you understand that all of us, bar none, have disobeyed God? We've fallen. No, we haven't fallen. We've marched headstrong into sin. And God justly condemns man to death and to hell. But God, but God in immeasurable grace, sent His only begotten Son, and Jesus lived a sinless life. He died in the... Sorry. He died on the cross in your place and mine. He bore the full weight of God's wrath against us for our sin. And now He calls all men everywhere to repent, to turn away from sin, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So I ask you again, do you know what it means to be born again. Uh, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, everywhere he went, he used to ask people and preach about being born again. And one day a lady in somewhat annoyance came to George Whitfield and said, Mr. Whitfield, why is it you just keep saying we must be born again? To which George Whitfield turned around and with his great big barrel chest and his booming voice, he said, that, madam, is because you must be born again. <laughs> That's exactly it. All those who believed, all those who have been born again were gathered together with the church. You're here this morning. Let me ask you the question. When the lights go out at night, 
when the gathering is dispersed and you are alone, one-on-one with God, can you truly say from the bottom of your heart, I know what it means to be born again. I know what it means to be made a new creature in Christ. I know what it means. The Spirit of God is in me, alive in me, testifying to me, working through me. I feel that love for other believers. I feel that joy in Christ. I can't wait to be at church on Sunday morning, to be with the believers, to gather with them and fellowship with them and love them and share with them and be ministered to by them and minister to them. Because brothers and sisters, when it says all who believed, that's what it means. Notice also, and thirdly, there is power for brotherly love. There is power to validate the apostles' words. There's power to make believers. There's also power for brotherly love. Notice that they were all who believed were together. Being new creatures in Christ, believers, God gave them a new identity. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. We are not who we once were if we believe in Jesus Christ. All those men, all those who believe, it used to be described as Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea. They had all these descriptions of them. Now it's reduced down to one word, believers or disciples. There's a new identity. In 1 Corinthians, we're described as members of a new body, a body of Christ. In 1 Peter, Peter describes the church as living stones who are being built up on the foundation cornerstone of Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We're part of the living temple of God. In Ephesians, we're members of a new family adopted into the family of God. And that new identity, that new filling of the Holy Spirit brings new desires and new affections. The disciples were, if you look at the Greek, when it says all who believed were together, in the Greek, if you translate it literally possibly, it it means they were in the same. That's it, in the same. Meaning what? Well, in the same place is the way we usually translate it. But you could also translate in the same mind. In fact, it talks about a little further down day by day, attending the temple together. The word for together means one mind. They were in the same. They loved to be together. There was a desire to be together. There was a desire for one another. The presence of the Holy Spirit brought and produced in all those new believers a love one for the other. They had a love for one another. They, in love for their eternal family, desired and to be together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is tragic to me that one day my marriage will cease. Love my wife to bits. I'm not going to leave her until God takes me from her or her from me. But if we're caught up into eternity together, that marriage relationship will dissolve. But you know what? she'll still be my sister in Christ, and so will every other sister in the room. We'll still be brothers in Christ all through eternity. This new relationship that we have now as brothers and sisters in Christ is an eternal relationship. It's never going to end. Isn't that a marvelous thing? You're stuck with me for eternity. Sorry, I didn't mean to discourage you badly. Isn't it great? And you know what? We better learn to get along, right? 
because it's a long drive through eternity. And they were together. They loved to be together. Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, said this, 9 and 10, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The natural outflow of that new life in Christ is a love one for the other, a brotherly love. Romans 12, verse 10 says it this way, Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor or showing love to one another. What does that look like? Okay, take your Bibles. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a great passage. You hear it read at weddings all the time. And the one thing it probably doesn't have much to do with, a little bit, but not a lot, is weddings. Because it's not talking about marital love. The love that's being described here is a love of a church. Brotherly, sisterly love. One brother and one sister for another and each for the whole. I want to read this uh, verses 1 to 8 and see how brotherly love works. And Paul again is writing. And he says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That love that Paul is describing, he's not describing as a marital love, although it certainly works in a marriage situation. He is primarily describing the love that the believers in the local community of faith are to have and to display one for the other. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Ministry without love, it's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I don't have love for the saints every time I get up here and preach, Brian should stand up with a big gong and just start beating on it with a stick. Dong, 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 dong. Because that's all it is. You know what he's saying? He says, if I understand all the mysteries, I have all this knowledge and I have such a great faith that I can command a mountain to be moved into the sea. And if I do not have love for my brother and my sister, it, it's nothing. It doesn't count for anything. If I give away all I have, and some of us have lots to give. If I give away everything I have, if I give up my body to be burned, if I walk out that door and let another group take me and chain me up to a stake and set fire to me, and I don't have love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, it counts for nothing. You know what? You get back to Acts chapter 2 and you see these brothers and sisters and they, all those who believed, were together. And they had all things in common. There's a brotherly love amongst them. Notice also, he says that love is kind and patient. And those things, they're all fruits of the Holy Spirit. They're all, not fruits, 
fruit, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. When we come together, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not just so we can do something and tick a box and go home. We don't come together primarily to get something. If you come here week by week to sit in amongst the people of God and get your daily or weekly fix and fill, if you come in to get your free cup of coffee and a cookie, if you come to spend some time amongst God's people just to take something away from you, you totally miss the point. The point of our coming together as a body in Christ, as spirit-filled believers, is to give. Because the love he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13 and the love that's implied in Acts chapter 2 is hagape love. It's love that wants to give. It's love that sacrifices for the betterment of the others. That's why, brothers and sisters, we are all members of the body. And every single member of the body, just like your human body, every single cell, every single organ, every bone, every muscle group, they all have a role and a function to fulfill. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the New Testament church as described here in Acts chapter 2 is a New Testament church that is driven and moved and motivated and enlivened by the power of the Spirit of God. And our church is ought to be the same. Tragically, so many groups have taken what's described here, selling goods and all that sort of thing, and they've, they've, they've taken it as a prescription for what every church should do and try to do the same thing, and they've missed the point. The point is the power of the Spirit of God working in those lives of those believers and what they were doing in Acts chapter 2 in those years was one example of how the Spirit of God works and ministers through each believer in the lives of the other believers. It was the power of the Holy Spirit for brotherly love. I'll take one more point, and then we'll close, because I think lunch is getting close. Lastly, I want you to notice it was the power for sacrificial love. It was the power of the Holy Spirit to validate the apostles' words. There was the power of the Holy Spirit to make believers. There was the power of the Holy Spirit for brotherly love. There was also the power of the Holy Spirit for sacrificial love. The Bible says in Acts 2 verse 44, they were all together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We've been saying that this is a spirit-filled life. The spirit produces fruit and evidence of his presence and obedience to the Lord, to the Lord is evidence and fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in all of us. Those who have believed are filled with the spirit. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 5 it says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep His commandments. In other words, our obedience to the Lord's commands is evidence and proof that we've come to know Him, that we have the Spirit of God working in us. You say, what's that got to do with selling possessions and goods and so on? I'm glad you asked. Take your Bible, stick your finger in Acts 2 and flip back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 and verses 33 and 34. I want you to notice what Jesus said. It's like you're reading it right out of Acts chapter 2. 
In Luke 12, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. We saw up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that these new disciples, they persisted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What did the apostles teach them? Well, I'm almost convinced. I'm convinced. No, almost I am convinced. He taught them all the things that Jesus said. In fact, what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, go and repeat all the things that I said. Go and teach them to all the new disciples. So Peter and the apostles get all the disciples together, probably on Solomon's colony, and they begin to teach them all the things that Jesus said. And the new disciples, filled with the Spirit of God, are listening to what's being said, and they hear the words, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And they go back and they look around. They got all these people from the church. Some of them are wealthy men. They've come from far away with money bags to come and worship and live in Jerusalem and worship God. And through this journey, this experience, they've come to know Jesus Christ. And now they're hearing, sell your possessions and give to the poor. They're looking around at all their poor relatives, their brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. And they immediately start selling off their possessions and giving to the poor. Notice what it does not say. It does not say they all sold all their possessions, gave it all to the disciples, and they distributed it equally amongst all the believers, like communism. That's not what it means. In fact, if you want you to notice very carefully, he says uh, they were selling their possessions. They met in their homes and they received their food. Meaning what? Meaning that those possessions and belongings were owned by those individual disciples. And when need arose in the church, disciple John over in one corner says, I can see Mary over in the far corner, and she's a widow, and she's got three kids, and she needs help. And he would go out and he would sell off some possessions and come, and the money that he gained from those possessions, he would display or give to her, distribute to her. As any had need is what it says. Meaning that it wasn't just a communism. It wasn't a communal living. They didn't all come and camp together and put all their possessions in a big pot and just spread amongst the group. And they were still living individual lives, but their love for one another was a sacrificial love so that one in need never had to worry because the church would look out for them and look after them. As we know, one of the biggest, one of the fierce disputes arose up in the church where some widows were being overlooked in distribution of food. So clearly, by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, they haven't redistributed all the wealth amongst the people. There are still some poor widows and some not-so-poor folks. But their love that they had for one another was a sacrificial love where they were willing to give up what they had of earthly possessions to take care of and look out for one another. It's a sacrificial love. It wasn't a love that just gave a little bit. Somebody made the comment once, it's not giving till it hurts. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to put it. In other words, it's not giving like 10%. People ask all the time, is tithing a New Testament thing? And I said, yeah, tithing is a great New Testament truth, but you've got to go by what the Bible says. What do you mean? 
I said, well, because when Jesus commended tithing, you know what he did? He looked at a poor woman who gave all she had. So if you want to go by a tithing percentage, it's easy. It's 100%. So put in 100% and you're good. You can go on a tithing method. <laughs> you know, look, you're thinking I'm nuts, right? Well, that's what it was. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, look at all the way they gave and how much they gave, it probably worked out to close to 25 or even 30%. 10% was the one part of it. But those disciples, they gave till it hurt. The disciples later on in the, in the history of the church, one church in one area was suffering, and another poor church gave out of their poverty to supply the need of another poor church. They gave till it hurt. And these disciples were marked by a sacrificial love one for the other. Now, brothers and sisters, we're not ignorant. We live in the wealthiest corner of the world. You say America's more wealthy. Well, maybe America's more wealthy, or maybe England's more wealthy. I don't know. But compared to 80% of the world living in Africa and India and China and places like that, we are fabulously wealthy. And the likelihood that we're going to have somebody who is a regular member of this church who doesn't have what it takes barely to put food on their table and clothes in their back isn't that great. Maybe, but not like they had in their times. They didn't have social assistance and all that sort of thing. What's my point? My point is that we in sacrificial love need to give to the benefit of the other. We need to give and so that it hurts that the other person might be built up and encouraged and strengthened. So practically, it might not look like money in someone's hands. Although I will add this. One of the humbling moments in my whole life. I need to be humbled on a regular basis, but this happened probably 20 years ago. We're going to church, and we really didn't have much. In fact, I don't think we could find one penny to rub against the other penny. And things were tight. And one day afternoon after church, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I think uh, we only had, I think, two of our kids, and Heather and one boy was asleep. I hear in the front door. I don't know what's going on. I went up there, and, and one of the elders stood there, and he looked really embarrassed and awkward. Uh-oh, what's going on? I said, hey, Andrew, what, what's up? And he said, he's, oh, I, I, just, I just noticed this morning, you, you know, you seem really down, and I, I think I know what the reason may be. And he said, well, I just, this is from Esther and I. And he, he reached out and put an envelope in my hand. And before I, I looked down and looked at it, I went up to say thank you, and he was already walking away. And there was 800 bucks inside. Staggered my mind. He was a guy who looked around with his eyes open to see what was going on in the church. And he gave sacrificially to meet a need. He didn't go make a public announcement. He didn't go and get everybody together. This came out of their own pocket. They met needs. Brothers and sisters, here's a, here's a call for us. The world will know that we are Christ's disciples by the love that we have one for the other. The world could see in their day that this group was dramatically different. Clearly, the power of the Holy Spirit was a work amongst those people as they proclaimed their message of the gospel and they loved one another with a sacrificial love, providing for one another's needs, brotherly love that came alongside, that longed to be together to build up and strengthen another person. Love doesn't mean squishy affection in this case. It's not running around giving everybody hugs and kisses. Love sometimes does the difficult and the uncomfortable thing. Love sometimes comes along and says, I, I got to talk to you. 
and go for a ride in a car and spell out something that they've seen in your life. And they say, brother, I'm concerned because I see this in your life. I see a habit developing. I see a pattern forming. It's a sinful thing. And God, you need to deal with it before God because if you don't, it's going to hinder your walk with Christ. And when it hinders your walk with Christ, guess what else it's going to do? It's going to hinder the whole church. And the work of the Holy Spirit is going to be restricted in your life if you don't deal with this. That's love. It's not somebody getting in somebody else's business. It's brother coming alongside brother and sister coming alongside sister and saying, in love, I need to minister to you. It's going to hurt me because it's going to be very awkward and uncomfortable and you might not react the best way. And I'm not sure. I'm a bit afraid to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because in love for you, I want you to go on in your walk for Christ. Brothers and sisters, brothers, especially older ones. You see something in my life? Don't stop. Walk into that office and say, Nels, I've got to talk to you. There's something that needs to be addressed. I need it. And brothers and sisters, so do you. Sacrificial love that ministers to one another. It might be financial. It might be practical. But it might also, in fact, in our case, more so, it'll be coming alongside one another and saying, I see something in your life that needs to be dealt with. I need to talk to you to make sure. It's happened once in this church. A dear sister, older sister came up and said, I got to talk to you about something. Are you all right? <laughs> That's a great question. Are you all right? Be concerned because you just look a little down recently. And you know, that was a wonderful challenge. And we sat and shared and, and laughed together. But somebody had the courage to say, you know what, I just want to make sure they're okay. Brothers and sisters, the world outside will know that we are Jesus' disciples. Not by the grandeur and extent of our building. They'll know it by the love we have as we minister sacrificially to one another. We have an amazing Savior. We have been given amazing salvation. We have been filled with the Spirit to live this life, to please Him in everything we do. Brothers and sisters, look at the example of the early church and the way the Spirit of God ministered through them in the lives of each other. Such that the world outside stood back in awe and did not dare join them until the Lord saved them and added them to the number. Let's, would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then enjoy some fellowship outside. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning and we give you thanks, O oh God, for the, whole, for the Holy Spirit that you have filled us with, that has made us alive that teaches us the truth, that convicts us of sin, that leads us and produces fruit and evidence of His indwelling. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, O God, that in all His work, the Spirit of God points us back to the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank You that Jesus came and the words that He spoke were not just mushy love, they were difficult love. They were tough love. 
They were love that sacrifices. They were love, words of love that convicted and rebuked. They were words of love that brought the disciples up, pulled them up, and showed them the right way. Father, we pray and plead with you, O God, that the Spirit of God working in each of our lives, Father, would produce fruit and evidence. Father, that the Spirit of God would work through us to minister to each other. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that you would tear down the walls that we have built up, the religious veneer that keeps others from looking in out of fear. And Father, I pray that the brothers in this church would be free and encouraged and strengthened to go brother to brother, to build one another up, to strengthen one another, to share words of Scripture, to come alongside and pray for one another. I pray, O oh God, for the ladies in this church, the sisters, that they would gather together as sisters and use their time, O oh God, to strengthen and encourage, to share Scripture with one another, to encourage one another, and, Father, to gently, carefully rebuke when it's needed, all in submission to the Spirit of God, all in recognition of the Lordship of Christ in their lives. Father, we stand before you and we realize and we remind ourselves yet again that we are sinners saved by grace. None of us is in this body. None of us is a part of this church because we deserve to be here. We are all part of this body, this church that you are building because you had grace upon each of us. And Father, we don't stand here because we deserve to be here. We stand here because of your love and your grace and your mercy. And Father, as we minister to one another, sharing words of Scripture, praying for one another, coming alongside one another, helping each other through to walk the race, to run the race with endurance, Father, we pray that we would always be mindful of who we were and who we are. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We plead with you, O God, that you would take these words, take the scriptures, take these thoughts and meditations of the heart and bless them. Father, we pray that this message would bring forth fruit for your glory. Lord, we ask you to do your work in this church. The Lord Jesus prayed, your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Father, we pray that your will would be done in each of our lives this day that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would know total dependence upon you. Father, we ask you for these things. We give you thanks, O God, for your blessing. Lord, for the food that we are about to partake of. Lord, we give thanks for it. Father, we pray that our fellowship this afternoon might be glorifying and honoring to the Lord Jesus in everything we do. Father, we pray as we talk together and speak together, Lord, that, that he would be the topic of our conversation. Father, that he would be the center of everything we do today and all through the week. Lord, we ask you for your blessing and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.